Well, it was a great weekend up here in the New York metro area. I hope everybody got out in the sunshine, those of you who live in this area, those of you who live other parts of the country and out of the country, like some of my fans down under. I hope you had a good weekend wherever you were. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the National Preview Online podcast, the NPO podcast. If you have not already subscribed to the show, please do so, and you can do so in one of three easy ways. Go to either the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store, simply search out the NPO podcast and click subscribe, or download the free Podbean app in either of those two locations, search out the NPO podcast and click subscribe. Either way, you'll be notified if you subscribe every time a new episode is uploaded, and you'll also be able to leave comments and reviews, and we really would like to have both from you. The more positive comments, the more positive reviews we get, the more readily the show will grow and be found in search engines and allow us to bring you even greater offerings. We also would like to expand the nature of the show, maybe to include a call-in line and so forth. So if you could please leave those reviews, we would appreciate it. Okay, so I've told you in recent weeks that I feel the watchword for the current century, the 21st century, at least from this point forward, is hypocrisy. That is the key word, because every time I turn around, we see greater and more frequent examples of it. I want you all to hearken back to just about, oh... A year and three months ago, when this pandemic was being hawked by the media as the next version of the bubonic plague that was going to wipe us all off the face of the earth and how Donald Trump was doing nothing about it, even though the only reason why we have a vaccine is because of Donald Trump. And I've had arguments with friends of mine who have told me, oh, the Chinese released the genetic Uh, code. They did this and they did that. Well, how come the Chinese weren't the first people to have a vaccine? How come it was American pharmaceutical companies that were the first ones to have a vaccine? Beyond that, the bubonic plague killed almost half of Europe at one point. This virus has a survival rate of 99.5%. Hardly a bubonic plague or a pandemic by my judgment. Be that as it may, A host of restrictions were visited upon the American population in other countries worldwide, England and other places. We were all quarantined. First time in history that we quarantined the healthy instead of quarantining the sick. We were all locked down in our homes like rats. Meanwhile, the public transportation system continued to move where people are packed in like sardines, particularly in the New York subway system. Teachers stayed home, schools were closed, children stayed home, people living in close confines, surely that couldn't spread the virus. We were all forced to wear masks. We all became bank robbers, being masked wherever we go. And then businesses began adopting rules requiring masks based on the uh, recommendations of the CDC, and in some cases, based on the mandates of certain state governors, such as New York with Il Duce, Governor Benito Cuomo. These mandates uh, by the governors were based on CDC guidelines. You see, back then, Dr. Fauci, you know, Antonio Fauci, well, he was the, the end-all, be-all. His was the final authority. He, he was the god of the pandemic Dr. Fauci. Uh, 
Well, now recently, the CDC has changed course. They now say that if you are a fully vaccinated person, that you no longer have to wear the mask outdoors or indoors. First, they started with outdoors, and a few days later, they said indoors, except in very, very rare circumstances. Like if you walk into a correctional facility or a hospital, someplace where it's really, really packed, but basically almost every place else you go, you don't have to wear the mask. That was from the CDC. Now, today, uh, Il Duce, Benito Cuomo, ended the indoor mask mandate for vaccinated people. Governor Andrew Cuomo on Monday largely ended indoor masking requirements for people who have been vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19. The state is authorizing businesses to continue to require masks, but in most settings, vaccinated people will not be required to don the coverings. However, unvaccinated persons still must wear masks indoors, and the New York Department of Health is recommending masks for everybody in settings where vaccination status of individuals is unknown. Cuomo, in a press conference, cited how the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention abruptly changed last week uh, recommendations to state that fully vaccinated people do not need to wear face coverings indoors in many settings. Quote, by the CDC guidance, immunocompromised people, unvaccinated people should continue to wear a mask and social distance. But if you are vaccinated, you are safe. No masks, no social distancing. Now, if the governor is going through this and saying we don't have to wear the masks, and then he turns around and gives private enterprises the authority to compel you to wear a mask, how can you say that masks are no longer required? Uh, This is where the hypocrisy comes in. In my own residence where I live in Manhattan, uh, the co-op board started mandating they wanted everyone to wear a mask in the common areas of the building, and they prevented people from being on the elevators more than two at a time unless you were from the same family. And they did this because of the recommendations of the CDC that they said were surely the authority on this and because of recommendations and mandates by the governor. Well, now the CDC has changed course and the governor has changed course. But these buildings still want people to wear the masks. So what's the point? What's the point? How are we going to allow private enterprises to exert that kind of control over people's personal liberty when the powers that be, the the governor and the CDC, say it's no longer necessary? So roll that around your mouth a little bit, if you will. And by the way, these people who were telling us about the masks, uh, I don't know about you, but in every picture or video I've seen of Cuomo for at least the last year, I've never seen this son of a bitch wear a mask. So why is the mask uh, so important? If it's so important, how come he's not wearing it? He's the one that says, I think it's disrespectful not to wear masks. Think about it. Well, if it's so disrespectful, Governor Cuomo, why aren't you wearing one? So just remember that. Next time somebody asks you about a mask, tell them. Well, hold it. Weren't you the people that said I had to wear a mask last year because you said, oh, the CDC, Fauci, Fauci, Fauci? Well, Fauci, 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 the CDC, and Cuomo say I don't have to wear it anymore. So why are you all of a sudden uh, not happy with that recommendation? So you follow their guidelines and recommendations when it suits you and disregard it when it suits you? Hypocrisy. That's why I say hypocrisy is the watchword of the 21st century. Now, moving on. 
There's another matter I wanted to cover. I had told you long ago that this ultra-lurch leftward that we were experiencing with Joe Biden as president, who was only a figurehead, Valerie Jarrett and uh, uh, Susan Rice are really pulling the strings in the background for the, uh, the Obamas, uh, that this would backfire and there'd be a great deal of pushback. And there's pushback happening right now. You see various governors are refusing to sign on to vaccine passports. Oh, let's go back real quick. They're talking about vaccine passports in New York to show that you've had the vaccine or you have to, uh, let's see if I can get that here. You have to use either um, the state's Excelsior Pass, which is a vaccine passport system, use a different digital application or show a paper document. Well, I'm hanging my hat on the digital application because I'm not going to walk around with my vaccine card. Instead, what I did, which I thought was very prudent and very, very smart, I scanned my vaccination card with my phone as a PDF document, which is considered in every court as a legal document. So it's on my phone. So I have a PDF copy of my vaccination card with my name on it, and I can show that I am who that person says it is. So I think I'm good to go. So getting back to what I was just saying, I said they would overreach and people would push back. Well, the Supreme Court, which I've been very critical of in recent uh, weeks and months, as having done nothing to address the issue of the stolen election, having done nothing to address many things, not hearing cases, has finally stepped up. The Supreme Court today unanimously, that means nine judges, baby. So that means, Democrats, that even if you had stacked the court and put four more judges on, you'd still lose nine to four, even if you had your way with those four. The Supreme Court unanimously rebuffed the Biden administration on warrantless searches for handguns. Wait till you hear this one. The Supreme Court unanimously rejected Biden administration arguments in a case from Rhode Island that police should be allowed to enter homes without a warrant to seize handguns. The ruling came in the case of Coniglia versus Strum. It was filed on May, it came on May 17th. It was a court filing 20-157. Now, Eric Pratt, Senior Vice President of the Gun Owners Association of America and the Affiliated Gun Owners Foundation praised the decision. The Supreme Court today smacked down the hopes of gun grabbers across the nation. The Michael Bloombergs of the world would have loved to see the Supreme Court grant the police the authority to confiscate firearms without a warrant, but the Supreme Court unanimously, I can't stress that word strongly enough, nine nothing. That means even Elena Kagan and Justice Sotomayor and Stephen Breyer also unanimously rule that the Fourth Amendment protections in the Bill of Rights protect gun owners from such invasions into their homes. Now, the case, according to this article in the Times, came before the high court for oral argument two months ago when Biden and the Democrats in Congress began pressing for aggressive new restrictions on Second Amendment gun ownership rights, including these controversial red flag laws, which would allow gun seizures from law-abiding gun owners with limited due process, coming in the wake, of course, of these mass shootings. Now, police generally, as the article says, cannot conduct searches of private property without consent or a warrant. Now, it goes back to a case back in 1973 where the Supreme Court held that police may conduct warrantless searches related to community caretaking functions, but only for vehicle accidents. That was the case of Katie, uh, Caddy, C-A-D-Y, versus Dombrowski. Now, since then, 
the article goes on to say, that principle has become sort of a catch-all for a wide range of duties that devolve upon police officers that they must discharge aside from criminal enforcement activities. This is what the first circuit court of appeals had stated in the Coniglia case, which is the case at Barr that the Supreme Court ruled on today. Now, this community caretaking doctrine uh, represented the premise that the police don't always operate as law enforcement officials investigating wrongdoing, but sometimes as caretakers to prevent harm in emergency situations. So now, if there was a gun and the gun was in a car and the car is out in the street and it was a vehicle accident, they may have to confiscate that gun for safekeeping and there might be an exception to, um, to a warrant, you know, be a warrantless search. But it's kind of hard when you want to extend that reasoning to the inside of someone's home. So the case, the Coniglia case, is as such. Edward Coniglia had no criminal history and he had no record of violence. He had been married to his wife for 22 years. On August 20th, 2015, they had a disagreement inside their Cranston, Rhode Island home. The argument escalated. Now, he never threatened his wife with a gun. Instead, he produced an unloaded gun and said to her, why don't you just shoot me and get me out of my misery? Now, you and I all know we have said many things in the heat of passion that we really don't mean. If you say that one more time, I'm going to kill you. How many times have you said that in your life? I'll slug you. I'll do, and you don't act on it. So supposedly worried that he might be suicidal. And he didn't say he was going to kill himself. He told his wife, why don't you just shoot me and get me out of my misery? Worried he might be suicidal, his wife asked the police to conduct a welfare check. The husband went to a local hospital briefly after the police assured him, Reed lied to him, that they wouldn't take his two handguns. After he left, they seized his guns without a warrant, telling the wife his life and others could be in danger if they left the guns in the home. The police further refused to return the weapons, and Mr. Coniglia sued, arguing that community caretaking exception should not apply inside the home, the most protected of all private spaces. Now, this was argued before the First Circuit, everything else, but uh, there were oral arguments on March 24th, and the Justice Department tried to make that case. They tried to support the position that the city of Cranston had taken with their police department, saying that although there's been a lot of questions this morning about whether this is emergency aid or exigent circumstance, regardless of what you call it, uh, it's not the name of it is not as important as the principle. The key principle is if someone is at risk of serious harm and it's reasonable for officials to intervene now, that is enough. Well, I'm not so sure it was very clear in that situation that someone was at risk of serious harm. Cranston didn't say he was going to kill himself. I mean, Coniglia didn't say he was going to kill himself. He didn't represent that he was going to kill his wife. He didn't represent he was going to kill anyone. He didn't represent that he was going to do any harm. He was in an exacerbated moment or exasperated moment, simply saying to his wife, if you feel that bad, why don't you just shoot me now and put me out of my misery? I'd rather get that than listen to your bullshit. And who hasn't said that at one time or another to his wife? I mean, I'm sure there are people that have never had an argument with their wives, but uh, you know, my wife can get on my nerves sometimes. I'll still love her. I love her to death. But 
we, and she may say I get on on her nerves once in a while, but we're not going to do harm to each other or uh, to ourselves or to each other. So it's just all ridiculous. So the Supreme Court wrote in a four-page opinion written by Justice Clarence uh, Thomas, and he noted, did Justice Thomas, that in the precedent case, Katie versus Dombrowski, which, uh, which he indicated applied to police responding to disabled vehicles or investigating accidents. The question today is whether Katie's acknowledgement of these caretaking duties creates a standalone doctrine that justifies warrantless searches and seizures in the home, wrote Justice Thomas. And he added, it does not. Thomas wrote, that the federal, federal district court ruled in favor of the police and the First Circuit expanded on this, stating that police often have non-criminal reasons to interact with motorists on public highways. The appeals court extrapolated from the Katy ruling a freestanding community caretaking exception that applies to both cars and homes. Now, this is a perfect example of what I've been talking about. This is judicial activism. Not conservative activism. This is liberal activism. This is the First Circuit trying to infer language and meaning into a standing decision that was never there when the Supreme Court ruled. They said, oh, it's caretaking. Well, what the hell? Car, home, same difference. Big difference. The appeals court community caretaking rule goes beyond anything this court has recognized, wrote Justice Thomas. The acknowledgement that police officers perform many civic tasks in, mar- in modern society was just that, a recognition that these tasks exists and not an open-ended license to perform them anywhere. Justice Alito wrote a separate concurring opinion in which he stated that the Supreme Court is properly rejecting the broad community caretaking theory. At the same time, he noted that the case implicates another body of law that the petitioner glossed over, the so-called red flag laws that some states are now enacting. Such laws, he wrote, enable the police to seize guns pursuant to a court order to prevent their use for suicide or the infliction of harm on innocent persons. Although this particular decision does not address those issues, provisions of red flag laws may be challenged under the Fourth Amendment, and those cases may come before us. So, these red flag laws now may themselves be red flagged by the Supreme Court, even though even though they're not warrantless searches or seizures by the police, and these red flag laws, as they've been proposed in some states where they've been enacted, require a court order, so some judge has to review this stuff before these guns can be seized, Alito, by his remarks here, this would be called dicta, is indicating that he doesn't think that in every case these red flag laws should fly, that depending on what the criteria is that these judges are are ruling on to take people's uh, guns and deprive them of their Second Amendment rights, uh, it may not pass constitutional muster uh, under the Supreme Court. So a lot of things happening when people uh, try and push an agenda that is against the will of the people. Uh, it is against the prevailing cultural ethos, uh, sometimes the courts step in. So I'm very, very fortified to see that the Supreme Court, on a very pivotal issue, the issue of guns and Second Amendment rights, stood in solidarity, uh, nine-nothing, 
indicating that this was an overreach on the, on the part of the, um, the state. Lastly, in closing out today, I want to show you democracy in action. The death penalty has been a topic of great debate in this country for many, many years. Death penalty was a holdover in the Old West. And over the years, throughout our history, there have been many ways in which society has chosen to execute people. We've seen it be as abhorrent as boiling people in oil, burning people at the stake, uh, drawn and quartered, some of the more horrific ways. As society has gotten more technologically advanced, we went to more merciful forms of execution. Hanging, believe it or not, while some people think is a very, very uh, uh, cruel way of execution, when done according to the guidelines put in place by experts, it was actually considered a very humane form of execution. It is not like in the Old West where they hung you from a tree, put you on the back of a horse, slapped the horse, and the horse ran out from under you where you slowly strangled to death. That was something which was not a particularly pleasant way to go. No. In the Old West, the gallows was designed that you would fall a certain distance, and when you hit the end of the rope, your neck would break and you would die almost instantly. But recognizing that some people are still opposed to capital punishment uh, and following Aristotle's maxim that law should be reason without passion, uh, when the decision becomes one of exterminating a human life in retribution for what they've done to another person, we don't want to prolong the suffering. We want to do this as humanely as possible. And in Various stages of the modern era, we've used the electric chair, we've used the gas chamber, and we've used lethal injection. Well, lethal injection has become the standard. It's become considered the most merciful way to execute someone. Put them to sleep and then give them something that stops their heart. Well, the pharmaceutical companies make these drugs. And in many cases, they no longer wish to sell the drugs to the states for this purpose. And this was the situation confronting the state of South Carolina. Well, South Carolina just passed a law, and South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster just signed this bill into law over the weekend that would require death row inmates to choose their execution method if lethal injections are not available in the state. See, prior to this time, people had the choice in the state of South Carolina, if you were on death row, you could choose either lethal injection or you could choose the electric chair because the state of South Carolina still had the electric chair. But the choice was the inmates. Every inmate on death row right now in the state of Carolina, South Carolina has chosen lethal injection because it is the one method that's not currently available because they won't sell them the drugs. So now you must choose of the available methods. And in a state of South Carolina, and in a very, very democratic and magnanimous gesture, the state has now added an additional method of execution. If you do not wish to go to the electric chair and lethal injection is not available, you can now choose death by the newly formed firing squad. Now, apparently the firing squad is used in other states. Now, we don't think of it here in the Northeast because we live in this enlightened liberal state that's nothing more than a sewer now, but states like Mississippi... Oklahoma and Utah allow the firing squad according to the Death Penalty Information Center. So now the state of North Carolina has gotten into this, 
having been unable to purchase lethal injection drugs for about five years. So there are people on death row. Uh, For several years now, as most of you know, South Carolina has not been able to carry out executions, says State Senator Greg Hembry. He was a co-sponsor of the bill. Families are waiting. Victims are waiting. The state is waiting. Prosecutors said three inmates can't be put to death under the previous law because inmates who don't choose the state's 109-year-old electric chair are automatically scheduled to die by lethal injection. They have all chosen the method that can't be carried out. And to date, there are 37 inmates on death row in South Carolina. The last person executed in South Carolina was one Jeffrey Motts, who died by lethal injection in May of 2011. Now, this chap was sentenced to death after murdering his cellmate while already serving a life sentence for fatally shooting two elderly people during a robbery. So I thought I would take the opportunity not only to speak about this new law passed by South Carolina, uh, introducing a new method of execution and giving inmates a choice, but making them have to choose between one of the available options, not the option that's not available, thereby circumventing the legal system and granting themselves, for lack of a better word, a stay of execution. There is still a debate in this country about whether capital punishment is wrong, morally wrong. Does society have the right to kill someone? Well, I can tell you this. I was pretty knowledgeable of New York state law. New York used to have a death penalty, and we used to have first-degree murder in this state. First-degree murder was shooting a police officer or shooting or killing someone while confined to a correctional institution and serving a life sentence. Now, life without parole is often the default fallback position of opponents of capital punishment. So if you have someone who's serving a life sentence and they only have one life they can serve, what is the appropriate penalty for that person when they commit another murder while incarcerated under those conditions? Now, I can tell you that there was a man in New York State by the name of Lemuel Smith. Lemuel Smith was suspected in five murders and he was convicted of two. One was the death of a female correction officer while he was incarcerated. Now, there was no death penalty at the time for that judge to sentence him for. The judge, frustrated by the fact that he could do nothing more to Lemuel Smith since he couldn't sentence him to another life sentence, sentenced Lemuel Smith to 10 years in solitary confinement, hoping to drive him nuts. Well, would you like to know that the state of New York, its court system and its infinite wisdom, the Court of Appeals, ultimately uh, ruled in favor of Lemuel Smith and said that it was cruel and unusual punishment and vacated that sentence and put him back in the general population. He didn't have to serve 10 years in solitary confinement. So it wasn't cruel or unusual for Lemuel Smith to commit murder, which originally put him into the correctional system. I guess it wasn't cruel and unusual for him to kill a female correction officer while he was in that institution, but it was cruel and unusual to sentence him to 10 years of solitary confinement. This is where the inmates are running the asylum, and this is where justice has been set on its head. How do you deter? How can you allow someone to be in general population? Look, people are in prison because they did something wrong, but not everyone in prison is inherently evil, and not everyone in prison 
is a depraved murderer. Not everyone in prison deserves to die. There are people there serving sentences and they're going to be released and try to be reintegrated into society at some point. Are you telling me it's okay to put someone in prison and allow him just to roam the general population where he could kill God knows how many other people? What do you do when this person kills another person? be it a correction officer or an inmate. Does he just get freebies for the rest of his life because he's on life imprisonment? There has to be some finality with which we can end a person's life. There's got to be some justification for it. And I'm going to tell you something. As long as there's a death penalty, there's going to be no anti-life imprisonment lobby in this country. In fact, the fallback position, as I said earlier, of opponents to the death penalty is life imprisonment. So, if you are truly innocent of a crime and you're sentenced to life imprisonment, there's nobody beating down the doors to get you out of prison. You're going to rot there and you're going to die a terrible death. Slowly, psychologically debilitated, miserable in prison for the rest of your life. If you're sentenced to the death penalty and you're really innocent, Someone is going to find that evidence because there is a host of organizations, law schools, advocacy groups that are so against the death penalty that you could be a child pornographer, you could be a child molester accused of murdering 10 children, and there'd be some uber leftist looking to uncover every last bit of evidence to get you out of prison simply because they're categoric against the death penalty and you've been sentenced to the death penalty. There is no one that's going to be looking to get you out of prison if you're sentenced to life imprisonment. That's their fallback position. So now I put it to you, what happens if we do abolish capital punishment and there's no longer capital punishment? It's illegal in every state in the union. The Supreme Court votes against it. And it's no longer, the or, or the legislatures of the various states just vote to outlaw capital punishment. You know what's going to happen then. Then there will be an anti-life imprisonment lobby, because that would be the standard. And there would be people looking to get the most heinous of criminals released from prison because they're serving this cruel indignity of life imprisonment. I say, under certain circumstances, this fellow Jeffrey Motts is certainly one. Lemuel Smith that I just enumerated is certainly another. At a certain point, society has to say, we do not deserve to be burdened financially or morally or physically with these sorts of people who have proven themselves completely incapable of being rehabilitated, rehabilitated, totally incorrigible, and unworthy of life. They have forfeited the gift of life by their conduct, not on one, but on multiple occasions. Now, can there be any justifiable reason why you would oppose the death penalty for a person who has committed murder while they're serving life for murder? Is there something immoral about that? I think not. So it's time for us to re-examine the death penalty in this country. It may be a deterrent to some people. It may not be. But it's certainly, in my opinion, when used under those conditions to punish people who have already been given the maximum sentence, life without parole, who now decide to commit murder, 
under the auspices of that sentence. There has to be some way for a correctional system and a civilized society to deal with people like that. And unfortunately, that's the only way. In fact, we recognize this. We recognize this for animals. We recognize it, uh, in many cases, for people who are suffering. We have a lobby of people in this country that favor euthanasia. Why is it that we can't have a euthanization of people who have chosen other people to suffer? They've made other people suffer by their method, by their, by their actions, by their callousness, their total contempt of human life. Yeah, I'm very fond of the old Disney movie, Old Yeller. Old Yeller was a dog. He was a great dog. He protected the family, saved it from a wolf, got rabies as a consequence of it. The boy loved Old Yeller, but when Old Yeller got rabies, he was no longer capable of being saved, and it was time for Old Yeller to go, both because it was merciful to do so and because he was a continued danger. People like Lemuel Smith, as long as they're alive, People like Jeffrey Motts, who is no longer with us, but as long as they are alive, are completely incorrigible, they're incapable of rehabilitation, and they're a clear and present danger to anyone who is around them. And if you're going to stop judges who, in a moment of despair, have pulled out all the stops and decided to sentence them to solitary confinement, either for the rest of their lives or for an extended period, which is a tremendous financial burden to the state, what else is left to do? It's time to put them, out of the, put them out of their misery and put us out of our misery. It's time for them to go. The death penalty has an appropriate place, even in a civilized society. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Durant.